In the name of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. I look from afar, and lo, I see the power of God coming, and a cloud covering the whole earth. Go ye out to meet him, and say, Tell us, art thou he that should come to reign over thy people Israel? These words from a Matin responsory were sung by the choir to deeply memorable music last week, composed by Palestrina at the opening of the Lessons and Carols of Advent Sunday. And they led in to the majestic hymn by St. Ambrose, as translated by the Anglo-Catholic J.M. Neal. Come, thou Redeemer of the earth, and manifest thy virgin birth. Let every age adoring fall, such birth befits the God of all. This rather grand moment of liturgical and musical drama first opened a procession with carols on Advent Sunday in 1934, when Dean Milner White introduced the service at King's College Chapel, Cambridge for the first time. As Milner White observed, the purpose of the service is not to celebrate Christmas, but to expect it. This brings us immediately to that most Christian virtue, namely that of hope. It's impossible to imagine a theme more appropriate to the world in its present state than that thus of the season of Advent, with its twin message offering hope on the one hand and a call to preparation, repentance and reflection on the other. Hope and a corresponding sense of intense and eager anticipation of an ultimate remedy adequate to all the woes of the whole world thus come together with unique intensity in the opening season of the Church's year. The season which we continue to celebrate today with the fascinating words from Isaiah, Comfort, comfort ye my people, behold the Lord comes with might, which of course evokes the worth the setting by Handel in the Messiah. While the Gospel builds too upon the sense of anticipation directly alluding to the book of Isaiah in application to John the Baptist as a herald of the Messiah, behold, I send my messenger who shall prepare the way of the Lord. And there I will just, as a tiny aside, note that as we touch on John the Baptist, however briefly, I do have to wonder if you've ever considered the matter of eating locusts with honey. I have to confess this is not a temptation that has severely afflicted me, but uh, I will say that the rabbinical tradition upholds the propriety of eating locusts quite firmly, though not all of them. Not all locusts are kosher. But there are various types, and in the words of Leviticus, you may eat of every winged swarming thing that goes upon four, which have legs above their feet to leap upon the earth. These of them you may eat. And, of course, the later tradition indicates that locusts were indeed generally opened by detaching their wings with a knife, peeling them much as one might a shrimp. And rabbinical sources later suggest that they were regularly boiled, pickled in salt, preserved in vinegar, lest you run short. And the Mishnah obviously also mentions locust soup. So if you want variety for your forthcoming celebrations, you might want to think of some of those. And I did come upon a recipe once for chocolate chip chirpies. 
So for those of you coming to one of my own receptions at some point, if you get something unusual, you might, or on the other hand, you might not, want to ask what's in them. But we must not dis get distracted from the theme, which is that of hope, which John the Baptist was first to witness in a special sense. The Christian hope in he who is to come, namely the Messiah. But hope is a very rich concept with a very long history that goes back far before the time of Christ, both in the people of Israel, but also among the ancient Greeks, where we think of the word, obviously also used in the New Testament, elpis, and we think about ancient Greek sources that use the word and find a degree of ambivalence there about it, as when it's exhibited by those who have insufficient knowledge or are merely indulging in wishful thinking, a rather empty kind of hope. Yet it could also be seen as worthy of praise in the face of despair, as we see in Thucydides. But perhaps nowhere is the two-edged aspect in Greek thought more abundantly presented than in the story of Pandora that comes down to us from Hesiod's works and days. There, as every schoolboy would at one time have known, not nowadays, I fear, Pandora opens her famous box or jar and releases all manner of evils into the world. But when all else has gone from that jar, one thing remained, and that was hope. More exactly, to tell the story a little bit more fully, after humans received the stolen gift of fire from Prometheus, an angry Zeus decides to give humanity a punishing gift to compensate for the boon they had been given. And he commands Hephaestus to mould from the earth the first woman, which is described in a strange turn of phrase as a beautiful evil, as she's rather disturbingly described, whose descendants would torment the human race. But as Hesiod relates the story thus, the Pandora myth is a kind of theodicy, addressing the question of why there is evil in the world. I'll proceed from the whole matter of what parallels and contrasts there might be when we think of the story of Eve and Genesis, but I do think there are some aspects there that are of interest. The detail of hope left behind is provocatively ambiguous. Did its lingering mean that hope was left enduring for all humanity, or instead was it the implication that hope was being kept from us? Was hope to the Greeks then a comfort to us in misery? and a stimulus to activity, or an idle hope for the self-indulgent, offering a mere distraction from the struggles of life that should be our sole concern. These different interpretations of the Pandora myth are taken up in various ways in the later history of philosophy on this topic. Nonetheless, many would nowadays take hope to be in its ordinary secular meaning to desire with anticipation something it is thought possible to attain, even if doing so will be difficult. And there the realistic possibility of attainment is part of what distinguishes hope from mere desire. But this is in fact all quite different from what is meant by hope as a Christian theological concept. By contrast, Christian philosophers and theologians, going back through Aquinas and Augustine all the way to St. Paul, understand hope as one of the most central virtues of a believer, 
and part of a rational or at least not unreasonable faith. Fundamental here is that Christian hope means something much richer because of the uniquely Christian understanding of the telos, of its goal, as something which ultimately lies in God. As such, to use the language of St. Thomas Aquinas, hope, along with the other two so-called infused virtues of faith and charity, that is to say love, are such because they have God for their object both insofar as by them we are properly directed to him and because they are infused into our souls by God alone, as also finally because we come to know of them only by divine revelation in the sacred scriptures. And in the words of St. Augustine, only if one loves the future fulfillment of God's will and thus hopes for it, can one arrive at the concrete, the correct form of faith? Thus, for the Christian, we are very much not talking about hoping as a mere wishing for something, in some vague spirit of optimism or mere desire, as one might hope for good weather. A point for once badly missed by G.K. Chesterton when he glibly reduced hope to the mere power of being cheerful in circumstances in which we know them to be desperate. In fact, for the Christian, the act of hoping, in the act of hoping, we are doing something more akin to placing reliance on each other as people do who make mutual commitments for the sake of a common good. A telos, of course, again that will be realized only if the parties keep their promises. A powerful illustration of this is lived out when a married couple can reasonably rely on the promises they make to each other in their wedding as the basis for their hope for a happy marriage. Thus, Christian hope rests quite distinctively upon a confidence that is in a deep sense made absolute by virtue of its object which is to say, God. And by virtue of our understanding of ourselves as children of God, this entails that we can count on God, our Father's grace and mercy, as much as we do upon his continuing will that we exist from one moment to another, which is what the doctrine of creation tells us. Thus are we grounded as we strive to abide in his love, through the course of this life and ultimately to die in Christ, as we look always toward the resurrection of the dead and the eternal life in the kingdom of God that is to come, a reality made available to us through the saving work of Christ. All of this underlies that this unique and specifically Christian perspective has very deep historical roots, as we have seen going back to the Old Testament as well as the earlier Greek thought, for example, which is a vast narrative in the Old Testament covering centuries over which the people of Israel wrestle betwixt hope in and alienation from their ultimate vocation given to them by God, a story replete with illustrations of the important consequences and corollaries that the concept of hope as rooted in God brings with it. We have been vividly reminded of this in the book of Jeremiah, which is often read in the days leading up to Advent. As a prophet, Jeremiah was faced with dire times and terrible realities, 
of which he was called to warn his people. In the midst of all this woe, it is clear that he too was himself at points discouraged, and yet ultimately he continued to find and maintain a deep sense of hope, grounded as it was in his awareness of utter dependence upon God and the sense of the great wrong committed by the Israelites in failing to acknowledge this as they ought. This makes his writings all the more relevant to us today, for they also serve to remind us, as much as they did the people of Israel whom he addressed, that our actions matter and can have eternal consequences. Yet there does seem to have been a point when he came close to doubting God, think of Jeremiah 15, 18, at which point he receives the response, if you repent, I will restore you, that you may serve me. If you, utter, if you utter worthy, not worthless words, you will be my spokesman. Let this people turn to you. Thus, even as a great prophet of God, Jeremiah experienced rejection and discouragement, but remained faithful to his calling over the course of 40 years. And we may note in passing that the original vocation of the prophet is always that of calling back to the right path. It is not, as one sometimes hears nowadays, a calling forth to adopt untried innovations, alien to what has been upheld before. Jeremiah's experience thus anticipated that of St. Paul centuries later, who noted that while God's truth can sound like foolishness to those who are lost, to believers it comprises the very words of life. Think of Corinthians. Yet nonetheless, there will be times when people will not tolerate the truth. What may seem foolishness in the eyes of non-believers does make sense, though, to the believer, not as mere blind faith, but on account of its explanatory adequacy to the human condition. It is the possession through faith of a wider and overarching cosmic perspective that can help us, as it did Jeremiah, to make sense of the sometimes terrible circumstances we find ourselves in, in this world. It helps because it gives context to the reality of this world's sometimes difficult imperfections. If we seek a profound image for all of this in Jeremiah and his life of wrestling with his faith in service to God, it's surely that of the Michelangelo portrait of him placed as the first of seven prophets on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. In that image, often thought to be a proleptic self-portrait by the painter himself, Jeremiah is shown in old age with a deeply lined face and also with his mouth covered and finger extended in the formal posture known as the signum harpocraticum, the ancient gesture of silence, which signified also, though, possession of deep knowledge. If the image of Jeremiah presented there is one that induces, as one commentator puts it, powerful sentiments of reverence and awe, this should remind us, too, of the hope that ultimately sustained the great prophet as they are portrayed, long before the great coming of the Messiah in Jesus Christ. Thus are we called, too, in the words of Dean Milner White's Advent Sunday Prayer, 
Beloved in Christ, as we await the great festival of Christmas, let us prepare ourselves so that we may be shown its true meaning. Let us hear from Holy Scripture how the prophets of Israel foretold that God would visit and redeem his waiting people. Let us rejoice that the good purpose of God is being mightily fulfilled. Let us celebrate the promise that our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ will bring all people and all things into the glory of God's eternal kingdom. Amen.